Please open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a blue Bible in a seat in front of you if you need one. You can actually keep that if you'd like it. Romans 8 verses 14 to 17 is one of the most tender and beautiful passages in the Bible. It is an intimate picture of our permanent adoption by God. The Spirit of God assures all Christians that they belong to God, that He is our Father, that we are His children, and that by the Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. So if you're able, I want to invite you to stand with me. I'm going to read God's Word. I'm going to read Romans 8, verses 14 to 17. This is the inerrant, inspired, infallible Word of God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray you would have your way in our hearts today, all for your glory. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. The Spirit of God assures Christians that they are God's children. And we see three identifying marks or signs of sonhood in this passage today. First, we see that a believer is controlled by the Spirit, verse 14, controlled by the Spirit. Second, we see that a believer cries out to God. They're crying out to God, verse 15. And then third, that a believer is confident in Christ, verses 16 and 17. So controlled by the Spirit, crying out to God, and confident in Christ. Now I think review is very helpful, so I want to recap where we've been in Romans, kind of chart where we're going as well. So if you go on a road trip, you need your GPS, right? Back in the day it was your, your paper maps or even your road atlas. But a road map to Romans points us to the fact that it's all about God's righteousness in the gospel, received through faith in Christ. In chapters 1 through 4, it was about believing the gospel message, believing the gospel, how mankind is sinful and depraved and under wrath and lost and hating God and no hope. Someone has said that if you can't fix it with duct tape, you're not using enough duct tape. Duct tape couldn't fix our sin problem. God did what we could not and provided eternal life in Christ alone. You move on to chapters 5 through 8, and it's about resting in the gospel, how there is is growth, there is struggles, but final victory. Chapter 5 talks about peace with God and access to grace and hope of glory in the midst of sufferings and God's love and God's assurance. We have reasons to rejoice. Chapter 6 talks about how we're united with Christ in death and new life. We are positional new creations, uh, progressively being changed 
and ongoing war with sin is happening. We are battling sin, which leads us into chapter 7, where in the midst of battling sin, our humble heart cry is, I do what I hate. I can't do the good I want to do. I am captive. I am wretched. But the good news at the end of chapter 7 is that Jesus delivers. Jesus delivers. And then you get to chapter 8, and there's this mountaintop, this glorious mountaintop where we find out, first, that we're uncondemned. All in Christ, all who've been justified in Christ are uncondemned by their sin because Christ was condemned in their place at the cross. Our uncondemned status has been sovereignly decreed. It was providentially orchestrated. It was legally declared. It was eternally secured by God. You go on in chapter 8 and you see that there are, there are three questions that every Christian asks that are really being answered here. Question one is, okay, so now that I am uncondemned, what is now true about me? What is true about me? We find out that we are freed from slavery to sin, that we were died for, and we can't medicate our sin away. Christ was sent to be the sin offering. His death defeated sin, paid our debt, demolished sin's dominion in our lives. And therefore, we can now obey God. We couldn't obey God before, but believers can now obey God. Most recently, we've been in Romans 8, verses 5 through 13, and it answers question number two. Okay, so how does faith in, my, in Christ lead to growth and change in my life? How does my faith lead to change? And verses 5 through 8 talked about setting our minds on the Spirit of God. And there was this big contrast between unbelievers and believers. Mindset on the flesh or the spirit? Spiritual death or life? Hostility or friendship? Refusal to submit or yielded to God? Not pleasing God? Unable to please God or pleasing to God? Last week we looked at verses 9 through 13 and all about the indwelling Spirit of God, how the Spirit of God dwells in believers and changes our nature, guarantees our eternity, and empowers us to slay sin. Not just to say no to sin, but actually to kill it. So now what we're, we've got before us is the rest of chapter 8, verses 14 to 39, and it answers question number 3. And it's a question that a lot of people ask, and they might think about it inside. They might not even want to verbalize it audibly. But it's this. How do I really know that I have eternal life? How do I really know that I'm a Christian? How do I really know? And so today we're looking at verses 14 to 17, and we're getting a large dose of reassurance here. That those who are in Christ are children of God, controlled by the Spirit, crying out to God, and confident in their relationship with Christ. So look at verse 14 to begin. It starts with a tone-setting statement regarding being controlled by the Spirit. Look at verse 14. It says, all who, for all who. Now, this is, the English is very clear, okay? The Greek is even clearer. All who means everyone. Everyone who is led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So the idea of being led by the Spirit of God, a lot of people think this means getting help making decisions in daily life. 
You know, the Spirit's going to help me choose the right spouse or the right job or the right place to live. That is not what this is talking about. That is not what being led by the Spirit means. In order to go to that that idea, you have to ignore the context of this passage. Verse 14 is very linked and related to verse 13. The idea here is that being led by the Spirit of God is related to putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. For you are led to hate what God hates and love what God loves. He hates sin and loves Christ. If you're led by the Spirit of God, it means you are controlled by, constrained by, literally governed by the Spirit of God and what the Spirit says. And the Spirit speaks in the Word of God. And so you've got this idea of being empowered by, but also responding to the Spirit of God. And anyone who, who is controlled by the Spirit is a son of God. A son of God. Now, I realize that today, in the time in which we live, 2018, gender-neutral language is more acceptable today, more, more politically correct, and some people may be concerned about, you know, wait, you're referring to men and women with the masculine pronoun sons. You could even get all worked up about it, but we have to be very careful, very careful to never correct Scripture. You don't change the language to fit the culture. In Rome... Adopted sonship status was given only to males. But here, in this passage, sons and children are synonymous terms. Christians are called sons of God three times, verse 14, 15, and 19. Three times uh, Christians are called children, verse 16, 17, and 21. Now, I think there is a relation here to Galatians 3.28. Galatians 3.28 talks about that in Christ... There is neither male nor female. Neither male nor female. And what happens is a lot of people misuse this verse, mistranslate it, and and make an incorrect uh, egalitarian imposition uh, onto the verse, and they impose this, and they say, well, you know, all the roles in the church are up for grabs based on that verse. So we've got to read our Bibles with open eyes, not United States eyes or worldly eyes, It doesn't mean that all the roles in church are up for grabs. It means there is neither male or female in Christ, that we all have the same standing in our sonship in Christ as children of God. So that all Christians, male and female, are God's sons or God's children. The idea, by the way, when you think of children, uh, you can't separate that idea from love, from closeness of relationship, and from obedience. Right, parents, you cannot separate the idea of children from obedience. And our obedience is the result of the Spirit's work in our hearts. We put to death the deeds of the body by the power of the Spirit. The leading of the Spirit of God is the Spirit's governing authority in your life shown not only in your love for God, but your obedience to God. To to be led, you need to follow. So to be led by the Spirit, you need to follow the Spirit as your governor, as your regulator, even as your restrainer. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, we have as our ambition to please God. So what you want to do, you want to please God, you want to do what he says to do. 
So the first thing you see here, to, we must be controlled by the Spirit. A Christian is controlled by the Spirit. And then look at verse 15. A reassurance as we cry out to God. Verse 15 says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. See, slavery was your old identity outside of Christ. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. You might want to look there. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. By the way, one of my pet peeves is when a preacher says, you don't need to turn to it. Oh, yes, you always need to turn to it. It's one of the ways you get to know your Bible. You know, you're, you're at home and you're opening up your Bible or maybe you're flipping through on, in your electronic device, but you want to go find something and you're like, well, where, where, is, uh, where is Hebrews? I, you just gave me a blue Bible. <laughs> where is here Hebrews? Well, look in the table of contents. It'll show you where it is and then go to Hebrews and go chapter one and then chapter two. It's that simple. This is how you get to know your Bibles. Always turn to, those, to these verses. Here's what it says. For you... Okay, it says, uh, since therefore, since therefore, the children, okay, so we're talking about children of God, uh, children share in flesh and blood, he himself, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to slavery their whole life. That was us before we came to know Christ. And the Spirit of God removes fear of rejection and reassures you that God deeply loves you and you are his adopted, chosen child. Now this is if you believe the gospel and have been saved. This is not everyone in the whole world. Some people say, well, everyone in the whole world is going to be saved. They just have to figure it out and grow into what they've already got. That is not true. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Okay, here's the deal. You need to know that God is holy and you are sinful and you can't save yourself. You can't work your way to God. You can't, you know, adopt yourself into God's family and you need to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved because Jesus died in your place on the cross and he was buried and he rose from the dead on the third day and he's coming back. He's coming back with blessing for those who believe and Judgment for those who do not. It's very clear, very clear. The Spirit removes the fear of rejection in the life of a believer, reassures you you are God's deeply loved, adopted, chosen child. It removes the fear-based system of rules and regulations and performance and pressure and trying and failing. Go over to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Verse 18. You're having us go to 1 John 4 just to read one verse? Yes. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So don't fall back into a pit of fear if you're a believer, because, and you won't because God's fatherly love is guarding you from fear. Look at verse 15, it says, again, you have received, but you have received the spirit of adoption. That's not a, a possibility, that's a statement of fact. Adoption was very common in Roman culture, much more customary legal procedure than it was in, in Hebrew or Near East culture. 
It was a legal transaction that gave new rights and status and privileges and gave all the rights and status and privileges of a natural child. And here's how it would go back then, okay? Let's say you're a wealthy landowner. Okay? A wealthy landowner doesn't have an heir. So this man is a wealthy landowner who doesn't have a son to give his inheritance to. And so he could adopt someone as the heir. Could be a child, a youth, or an adult. You could adopt someone your own age. They'd have to call you dad, right? Famous adoption in the Roman world was Julius Caesar's adoption of Octavian, who became Emperor Augustus. And there were legal procedures that you had to follow to a T. You had to sever the social and, and legal relationship to the natural family. You're getting adopted into another family. And in those days, at the moment of adoption, several things were immediately true, instantly true. First, there was liberty. All your debts, all your legal obligations were instantly, completely paid off. Pretty good deal. We like this, right? You got a new identity. Immediately, you got a new name, and instantly, you became heir of all that the father owned. Immediately. Then there was a new liability, right away, liability. Your new father became instantly liable for all your actions, all your deeds, everything you did and said. And then there was a new responsibility pointed at the son. The new son had obligations to his new father instantly, had to honor and obey and please his new father. So there was this new family relationship that was it's created legally with all the rights and privileges and responsibilities of a natural child. Even today, we're, when, we're, in our day, if you are adopted, you cannot be legally disowned or disinherited. And biblically, biblically for a believer, you are secure. This is what this is telling us. This is, this is heartfelt, this is real, this is true. This, we are secure in Christ. You can look in the Bible and there are you know, um, you could call them adoptions where someone is brought into someone else's family. You can think of Moses, the first one. If you're going, just go start in Genesis. You're like, let's see the first one we can find. It would be Moses in Exodus 2, brought into the household of Pharaoh's daughter. You've got Esther brought into a home that wasn't her natural home. But the, I think the one that probably touches our hearts the most is Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. It's 2 Samuel chapter 9, and Mephibosheth was, was the son of Jonathan, okay? And King David, King David, to show kindness to the household of Jonathan, after he died, brought Mephibosheth into his home. And, and it was so significant in those days. Now, Mephibosheth's name meant shameful, okay? Shameful act. And he was an outcast because when he was younger and they were fleeing from enemies, he was dropped and he, he became unable to use both his feet. And in those days, you became an outcast. It was very sad the way it would go. But here, Mephibosheth is brought into David's household and become one of his sons and granted an inheritance. It's a touching story. In, in terms of spiritually, go over to Ephesians 1. I know we were there briefly last week. But Ephesians 1, I want to read to you verses 3 through 5. These some beautiful words about what God has done in the life of a believer in terms of adopting them. 
It starts this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's blessing God the Father. It's pointing out God the Son. And it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So in Christ, we have all the riches of Christ. We are part of the family. We we have an inheritance. And then it says this, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. So if you're a Christian, God chose you even before the world was founded, and the purpose was that you would be holy and blameless in his sight. And it says that in love, he predestined us for adoption. He planned ahead of time to bring you into the family of God for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And it was according to the purpose of his will. It was because he wanted to. It was because he loves you. It was because he chose to do it and he purposed to do it. And so he did it. And so when you read in verse 15 that you receive the spirit of adoption as sons, you've been given the spirit of sonship. The Greek word sonship means adoption. Sonship is the idea of being God's own child. If you're a believer, you are God's own child. You belong to him. And adoption is the process that leads to sonship. Sonship would have pointed even us to the Old Testament and the Jewish background. Israel, Paul says, uh, Romans 9.4, experienced adoption spiritually. So blessing given to Israel, now given to Christians. Even in 2 Corinthians 6, Quoting the Old Testament, God says, I'm going to welcome you. I'm going to be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. It's not a possibility, it's a proven fact. You have received the spirit of sonship in Christ. Literally, you've been sonized. That's literally what it means. You've been sonized, you've been adopted. You weren't born a Christian. No one is born a Christian. The father-child relationship with God is not automatic. You were spiritual orphans and slaves. An adoption tells you that your relationship with God is based completely on an act of the father, a legal act of the father. It all is on God. You cannot earn a father. You cannot negotiate a father. You cannot get yourself adopted. Just thought of that movie, Like Mike. (laughs) Is it Like Mike? Is that the one where he gets himself adopted? You can't do that. You can't talk someone into adopting you spiritually. You can't do it. Adoption is a legal act on the part of the father, very costly for him. You cannot win the status. You receive it. And this illustrates so beautifully God's love for us in Christ. That What amazing grace that God would take sinful people and make them his own children and give us all the rights and all the privileges of heaven itself. This is our status in Christ. And so verse 15 says that we've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry. By the spirit we cry and it's hard to even say it, Abba, Father. It's got an exclamation after each one. You don't, 
you don't find a ton of exclamation points in your Bible. There are a lot of exclamations. There are a lot of amazing things that are said. But we are being told here that we cry out. And, and seriously, I could yell it as loud as my lungs could, could yell it. And I have a pretty loud voice. Or I could whisper it. But either way, it's that we cry out by the Spirit of God to God. Abba, Father. We, we cry out. Our, our souls cry out. By means of the Spirit of God, we cry out to God, Abba, Father. And the great thing, the, the, the great connection here is that Jesus, Jesus did the same thing. In Mark chapter 14, go over to Mark 14. Again, we'll just look at one verse there, but Mark 14 Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is praying to the Father before he goes to the cross. Mark 14, verse 36. I'm looking it up with you. He said, Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Romans 8 tells us we cry out the same thing that Jesus cried out before he went to the cross. Wow. What kind of cry is it? What's our cry? What kind of cry is the Abba Father cry? It would be easy to say, well, it's a cry of familiarity. I mean, I remember when I was a younger dad, when our five kids, when, I was, when they were, you know, below my waist in height, and I would come home, and literally, I'd open the door, and it's like, daddy, daddy, and they'd all run and grab me by the leg, right? You're like, wow, they, they know I'm their daddy. So is it running to greet daddy? Because that could be. Is it running to greet daddy at the end of a long day? Or, or maybe because my kids have done this before, they, run, they ran to me for protection because they were getting chased by a dog or they were going to get hurt or in danger or they thought they were and maybe it's running to daddy from hurt or danger. Jesus prayed this. We need to know what kind of cry it was. And for Jesus and for us, it's a cry first of dependence but secondly, of obedience. Dependence and obedience. Now, we get the dependence part, but the obedience has to come with it. We are crying out to God dependently and proclaiming our resolve to obey him, just like Jesus did. He's crying out to the Father before the cross, and he's saying, just take this cup away from me. He knows the suffering he's going to incur, incur but he's like, but I'm going to obey you. Not my will, but yours be done. This is our cry. Lord, I cry out to you dependently. I love you. I need you. And I will obey you. Go over to Galatians chapter 4. This is the other place, the other time we see Abba, Father. Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7. It says, when the fullness of the time had come, 
So when the time was right, when the time was ripe, when, when everything had hurtled to this one moment in time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. This is why Jesus came. And it says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son, another name for the Holy Spirit, into our hearts, crying. What's the Spirit crying? Abba, Father. Romans 8 says, we're crying, Abba, Father. And the Spirit is crying, Abba, Father. And then it says, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What does Abba signify? It's an Aramaic word. It's an Aramaic expression that was used in prayer and the family circle. Abba was used in prayer in the family circle. Abba means father in Aramaic. It can be translated papa or daddy. Pater is father right next to it. Abba, father. But it's an expression used in prayer in the family circle. It is prayer. It's not a proclamation of sorts. It's not like you're going, God, you are my father. It's going, God, I know you're my father. You know you're my father. I need you. It's, it's where you're acknowledging your adoptive status with enthusiasm. Prayer involves your emotions. It's dynamic. It's vital. There is, there is think about your life. There's gladness and grief and everything in between, Right? And you are acknowledging to God, you're pouring your heart out to God. Uh, and, and when you do that in the joy and the gladness, in the, in the, in the grief and the gladness, you, you actually experience joy, even in the midst of grief. Abba, it, this is intimacy with God. You, you are confidently crying out to God who is your father and you're crying out dependently and obediently. How might this change your prayer life? How might this change your prayer life from gimme, gimme, gimme to what do you want, Lord? What do you think of when you hear that God is your father? How accurate is your view of his fatherhood? How, how shaped by your life experience is your understanding? And how does the word transform your heart here? We, we do project onto God how our fathers were or are. We just do it. It's human nature. But that means that if your dad was abusive or a tyrant or a jerk, it's easy to think that God must be like that too. And I'm here to tell you today, God is not like your earthly father, however good or bad he is or was. God is not like your earthly father. Any goodness you see in your earthly father, God is the perfection of that far, 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 far better and higher and greater. And any bad in your earthly father, there is no hint of that in God at all. Not a shred, not a sliver. I know this is tough for us, but we cannot blame God for misunderstanding his fatherhood. 
we come to him, as believers, we're able to, to cry out to God in love, in humility, with, with, with actually with, with reverence. You know, the question really is, how are we to approach the throne of God? How are we to approach the throne of God? We are to do so humbly, but also boldly. Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 4.16, that we are able to come boldly to God's throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Meaning that if you had a father that was really a wretch, and every father is, but that it really broke out on you, you can come to God for the mercy you need and the help you need to get through that and to get over that and to get to get even get healthy from that. Now I have a friend who always says daddy when he prays. Sometimes it's a little off-putting, sometimes it's it's great, but are we to say the actual words abba or or daddy or papa every time we pray? Well, I would just say this, you can you know, I could call you papa or daddy, but it doesn't make you my dad or or my papa, right? Um, merely using the word doesn't mean you have an intimate relationship with God. I remember when I was young, we were on a family vacation, and I recall a time when I jumped into a swimming pool onto my dad's back, or actually I thought I was jumping onto my dad's back, but it was really someone who looked like my dad, the back of his head looked like my dad, and I'm like, I jump into the pool, and I'm like, Daddy! And the guy turns around, and we were both surprised. See, the name only worked with real dad. (laughs) The man I was dependent upon and most of the time obedient to. But those who cry, Abba, Father, biblically accurately, are those who obey God. Those who love him, are dependent upon him, and obey him. If you're not a believer today, you're like, well, how do I obey God? You obey God by believing in Jesus Christ. If you're a believer today, how do you obey God? Do what the Bible says, in context, in your life. Don't pick and choose. Don't go, well, you know, I don't like that part. Abba Father is a cry of dependence and obedience. The question is, do you depend on Jesus and do you obey Jesus? Or do you excuse sin away? Or do you strenuously say no to sin and yes to Jesus? Jesus said in John 6, 46, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? In fact, he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? There's connection between uh, your joy in Christ and your obedience to Christ. We are to be controlled by the Spirit and, and crying out to God in dependence and declaring our glad obedience. And it leads us to confidence in Christ. The third thing we see in this passage, verses 16 and 17, confidence in Christ. And it's based on two things, the co-witness of the Spirit in verse 16 and being co-heirs with Christ in verse 17. Look at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness, testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Bears witness together, testifies, assures There's a testimony from the Holy Spirit and our spirit. It's a dual witness. Bears witness. 
In Roman adoption, there were seven honest witnesses were required to testify in case there was any challenge to the adoption, to confirm it, to support the person, to bear witness. And they put a signature of every witness accompanied by these words, I bear witness with and I seal it with this. This is true. The Bible tells us right here that the Spirit, and I think this might be the verse in in Romans that I have quoted to my own heart and to other people the most. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit testifies with our spirit. The Spirit testifies about God's work in your life. Think about it. You're, you, you're, you become a believer and there's evidence that you're a Christian and, and you trust Christ. You have his promises. You, your life is changing. Your life is growing. And the Spirit comes alongside and testifies with us and about us. You're really a child of God. You really belong to, to the Lord. Yes, this person really is a child of God. Yes, this person really belongs to the Lord. And it might come from the fruit of the Spirit showing out in your life. It might come from your testimony of faith in Christ. You have security and assurance in Christ. Jesus said in John 15, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also, co-testifying, because you have been with me from the beginning, he says. The one thing I wouldn't want you to do is either come into this room or leave this room thinking, I know everything there is to know about this passage of scripture. Oh, I know all about Abba Father. I got it wired. I can explain everything to you. What I hope you would do is embrace the mystery of this. There's something mysterious about God's witness with our spirit that we cannot explain adequately with human words. We cannot fully explain, but we know beyond our understanding without a shadow of a doubt there is a witness given to all believers without exception at conversion that lasts your whole life and to all believers, not just some, where you are able to experience sweet fellowship with God and, and you're able to think on his goodness and you're able to dwell on his word and pray and, and, and basically you're able to, to operate as a real Christian in the world that we live in knowing that the Spirit of God is very active and does a lot. And I hope you don't ignore the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is living in every believer. The Holy Spirit testifies with us, confirms that we belong to God, really testifies to our hearts and for us. Yes, this person really does belong to God. First, First Corinthians 12 tells us the Spirit of God puts us into Christ's church. That's the baptism of the Spirit. The Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 12, gives us gifts with which to serve God for his glory. So when you're serving, based on your relationship with the Lord, it's the Spirit of God that is using you. I think about the Operation Barnabas team that was with us recently. They're serving and pouring out their hearts. They even were evangelizing people in our church. I know of one person who became a believer because they shared the gospel with him. And the Spirit used them. I think of being at Hume Lake recently and watching all of our leaders pouring into the lives of these kids and, and giving them the word and, and, and the Spirit is using them. 
You'll pick up your kids in a few minutes and you'll be like, wow, someone was pouring into my child the love of the Lord and giving them the word of God. You go home and you, you open up the word with your family on a daily basis and the spirit of God uses that and you encourage one another and pray for one another and get in the word together. The spirit of God actively helps you know and do the word. The Spirit, we're going to see this later in Romans 8, the Spirit prays for us. With groanings too deep for words. Leads and empowers you to do the will of God. Galatians 5.16 produces fruit in your life. Galatians 5.22 is grieved when you sin. Ephesians 4.30 and convicts you to confess your sin and kill sin so fellowship is restored. 1 John 1.9 And you show up every week as a believer to this place, in this gathering, because the Spirit of God leads you to be with the the people of God for worship and and, and for for growth together and for encouragement and for fellowship. And you can know. You know what this passage is telling us? You can know with assurance that you are a child of God. John 1.12 tells us that as many as received him, as many as believed in him, To them he gave the right to become children of God. Now Acts 17 says that all people are God's offspring. That's absolutely true. But only believers are called God's children. You can't say, oh, we're all God's children. That is not biblically accurate. Every believer is God's child. You receive the spirit of God at conversion. You testify to being God's child. And the spirit testifies with you and for you that you are God's child. The question is, do you belong to Christ by faith in him? And if not, what's stopping you from coming to him as your Lord and Savior? 1 John 5, 11 and 12, written to Christians, says, the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, and he who has a Son has a life. He who doesn't have the Son doesn't have the life. Look at verse 17. If children... If you're a child of God by faith in Christ, then you're heirs. Heirs. Some people, when they see that word, just see dollar signs. (laughs) Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Knowing you have a future hope, that's a source of confidence. You are God's child by his adoptive choice, and you are a full heir with Christ. There is a certainty of your future salvation. Your inheritance is secure. You are a co-heir with Christ. God has caused you to be born again to a living hope in, in, in Christ. And, and your inheritance, 1 Peter 1 tells us, is irrevocable. It is imperishable. It's an inheritance. And here we are living daily with perishable things. And we see all around us things that can be defiled and fade away and stolen what happens in this sin-sick world. Marriages crumble away. Bodies waste away. Relationships drift away. But knowing that you have something immovable settles your heart. Faith in Christ is a fixed anchor. And you receive adoption, but you wait for your full completion of that adoption for the day of your final redemption. And I want you to know this today. If by faith you belong to Christ, you are a son of God and have his spirit. And either all of it is true about you or none of it is true about you. If the spirit is not in you, you don't belong to Christ. 
This is about assurance of the security you have in your salvation. Just the other day, a, a friend of mine's house was broken into. And I found out just yesterday that they disabled the alarm a while ago because it kept going off. I had two bikes recently stolen off the back of our car. I had neglected to lock them to the rack. Christian, you don't need to worry about if God has your salvation locked. The security system is on. No need to be insecure about if you belong to God or not. This is what you have to do as a believer. Just keep letting gospel truth sink down into every nook and cranny of your heart and your soul. That it would become so dear to your heart, so, so near to your heart, that it becomes the foundation of everything about you. Your mind is shaped by the gospel. Your heart is thrilled by the gospel. You are a gospel-infused and gospel-flavored person as you're living, as you're living, embracing the, the, uh, the, the mystery of everyday life where we don't know what's going to happen next. We don't know what's going to happen in five minutes. That God knows it all. He knows the beginning, he knows the end, he knows everything in between. We should never, ever forget our privileged position in Christ, that we are loved, that we are accepted, that we are assured of our relationship with God. And, and think about this, as, as tightly as you cling to Christ, Christ clings tighter to you. So you get distracted, you get discouraged, you get downcast. You hunger for righteousness, but you're harassed by sin. God isn't. He's victorious always. Jesus is superior to all. Jesus is killing the game always. Uh, he, his ability surpasses all. He is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all we can ask or think. So our confidence is in Christ. So another time we're going to pick up the rest of verse 17 where it says, provided we suffer with him that we may also be glorified with him. What, what, what happens there is Paul's showing his hand for the rest of the chapter that the rest of the chapter deals with suffering now and ultimate glory. But let me close by telling you this. I crushed a snake this week, ran it over with my truck inadvertently, and then a bird flew into the front of my truck just yesterday. I'm like, one more and I'm gonna have a trifecta, you know? <laughs> but I wasn't trying to kill either. But Jesus came to earth to crush the snake to crush the devil. Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come and his spirit changes us and we enjoy him forever and we live because our sonship in Christ guarantees our life. That's the basis of our baptisms tonight. People are gonna give testimony of faith in, what, in Christ and what he has done in their life. But I just wanna ask you, what are you gonna do with what you've heard today? What aspect of your sonship, your adoption, encourages your heart? Uh, what will make a difference in your thoughts, in your words, in your motives, in your priorities, in your actions? As the Spirit inspires in your life, these, these, really these three identifying marks, these signs of sonhood, where you are controlled by the Spirit of God, you are crying out to God intimately, and you are confident in Christ. I don't know about you, but I, I don't want to leave this passage I kind of want to just keep dwelling on Romans 8, 14 to 17. It's, it's tender, it's beautiful, it's intimate. It's a picture of our permanent adoption by God. The Spirit assures us that we belong to God. He's our Father, we are His children. So by the Spirit of God, we, we cry, Abba, Father.
Lord, we cry out to you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace and your love and your kindness to us. We are so undeserving of everything you lavish upon us. We praise you, Lord, for your good work of grace in our hearts. We thank you that you are always calling people into fellowship with yourself. We thank you, Lord, for your your mercy, your love, your grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.